Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. So, yeah, I just got back from a very interesting conference that was on the other side of the state in La Crosse, and this was actually a, a meeting for county government officials. And, of course, there were all kinds of presentations about fiscal stuff and, you know, various different programs, uh, funding and uh, site permits and all that other stuff. But buried in there, there were quite a few presentations actually about the justice system, which is why I went to this conference. And um, so many of the county participants, you know, across the state were sharing ideas that were, you know, for really lack of a better term, innovative when it comes to um, prospective changes in the legal system, you know, in an effort to make it better. And I was very uh, pleased by the fact that there are a lot of progressive minds out there that have uh, an intention and a desire to improve many of the problems that we've identified over the years in the criminal system. As John says, we don't, we shouldn't call it the criminal justice system. We should call it the criminal system. Um, But one presentation I want to share with you had to do with the concept of restorative justice and what that means, how we can start uh, going towards a model whereby there's better participation from both uh, an accused defendant as well as victims in the process and making it more of a solutions-based approach to things. Not so much you did a bad thing and now you have to go to prison. And I'm sure you've heard me say many times on this show that my view is that prison itself is somewhat of an outdated concept uh, in the sense that it does not deter crime. It doesn't necessarily um, reduce recidivism. In fact, think about it. You're warehousing people in a place where they're just going to be around other criminals. And basically, you're, (laughs) you're making their life a little more boring than it would otherwise be. Hmm. And we're all paying for it, which is weird when you really think about it. I mean, why, why do we do this? Why do we put people in cages? Um, you know, there, the, the whole thing about this restorative justice concept is that, you know, once you get past the fact that it isn't necessarily an eye for an eye model, you know, that primitive way of looking at justice, then you've got many other options to make it, um, a process whereby there can be a much better chance at closure. The way it is now, you know, let's say it's a very serious crime. Let's say it's a murder or something. And you have, you know, a devastated, heartbroken family of a victim. And then you have a, a perpetrator who who did whatever he did or she did for, for whatever reason. And the prosecution goes forward. Um, it's the state versus John Smith, you know, so-and-so, whoever it is. And it's a effort to present evidence to show that the guy is guilty and it's you know all the reasons why he should be convicted and then when and if that happens it goes on to well here's all the reasons why he deserves a harsh sentence so so the whole design is adversarial in the sense that it's one side versus the other and ironically um think about it if a defendant uh, has a right to remain silent and doesn't doesn't participate is not required to participate in any case and then is found guilty and sentenced he's really that person has not been a participant in the process and really has no input with regard to 
what should happen. I mean, everybody else is kind of determining what happens. And maybe when someone commits a crime, they shouldn't have that right. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that working towards a solution, as it were, is something that can have a, a better effect on all parties involved. So they were sharing examples at this seminar I was at of, uh, you know, they've had a few pilot programs in some counties in Wisconsin, not, not, uh, not at all the most common mode of doing things, but they've experimented with some, you know, restorative justice type programs in some counties. Other states have really taken quite an initiative. Minnesota, for example, has um, a very widespread and you know almost aggressive uh, restorative justice initiative. And so they were using a couple examples from cases, some of which were not in Wisconsin, but granted, they were, um, you know, these were processes whereby instead of a trial where, you know, it may take a year or two for all the witnesses and all the evidence and for the court to schedule a two or three week long trial is just nearly impossible. So instead of going that way, um, there's this approach where, you know, at the very outset of the problem, we utilize um, many of the resources that exist in basically all counties and all jurisdictions. And that is, you know, identifying what the immediate needs are. So certainly um, the victim's family would have uh, immediate needs uh, in terms of identifying counselors, uh, being uh, part of the process, being educated and guided through what's going to happen. But if you look at the other side of things, a, a defendant who was probably also grieving for the fact that he or she did something terrible and has to live with that. I mean, we kind of forget about that, don't we? Um, and again, not that a person stands in a position where they have a right to any of these things, but, you know, all said and done, if there can be a more of a group effort to try and, you know, you can't undo a crime, certainly, but in terms of, you know, a collective effort to identify where we go from here and, some of the most uh, rewarding experiences that I uh, heard about were, you know, when a victim's family gets to hear from a defendant about what was going on in that person's life, what led to this homicide. I mean, was it a drive-by shooting and you're just a bad guy? Or is it, you know, is it something else, you know? And did was there a drug problem? Was there a conflict? Was it an accident? what exactly happened. So, you know, I know a lot of people at the end of a trial are, are left wondering, you know, what exactly happened and nobody really knows because nobody gets that perspective. But assuming that there is a willing participant on the quote unquote defense side of this, it can be um, a, a uniquely um, beneficial experience given a bad situation. So there were letters um, that had been written to some of these restorative justice coordinators about, you know, from victims' families that said, you know, although we miss our child and we'll never get him back, participating in this process has given, you know, this is from the letter, has given me a sense of um, closure and it helped, it, I actually can sleep at night now where I couldn't before. You know, hearing the voice of the defendant was 
um, something that needed to happen. Hearing the apology, hearing the reasons, hearing the struggles that that person may have gone through that led up to this terrible situation. And, you know, it's something that's completely lacking in our system now. Um, so, you know, again, I think murder is a great example because there is no crime that is worse than that. And if we can design a model that fits with that sort of thing. Now, is that to say that the person... Um, ends up not being incarcerated or doesn't go to prison or whatever. Well, it's, it's kind of a balance, you know, there, there certainly has to be something. And one thing I'd point out, you know, a lot of these restorative justice models are not easy for a defendant by any means. I mean, it's difficult. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of intense supervision. It's, you know, but all of this is fashioned in such a way that it's an encouragement towards a participatory um, process. Now, think about how much money we would save if we weren't just warehousing people and paying for buildings, a roof over people's heads, uh, the, all the maintenance that that requires, the corrections staff, um, the food we have to feed people with. It's all a very, very expensive and probably unnecessary operation. <clears throat> and if that were directed in such a way that, you know, we know that if we can develop studies and statistics and understand uh, in a much better way, in a much more modern way, how um, we should address criminal behavior in our society, um, it stands to achieve those goals that we have, which is we'll live in a safer place. People will be happier. Crime will still occur, no doubt, but how we deal with it is a much more, you know, hands-on approach because we're kind of bypassing this whole process of a contested trial and, and all that. And as I've said many times before, our, our criminal system is so imprecise that it, you know, really causes concerns for people that have uh, ongoing contact with it, you know, especially like a defense lawyer like me, you know. But we have to take a break, and we'll be right back after these messages. You know, another thing that I've always thought of is, um, you know, kind of along the lines of when the Works Progress Administration had provided government jobs for people that, that needed them. Um, wouldn't it be interesting if we could incorporate uh, job opportunities for people that have committed crimes in, in areas that would not only benefit the person, but also society. And, you know, maybe if you're talking about like punishment, instead of just having somebody sit in a cell for 40 years, you know, which I don't know what good that does anybody, the person could be required to participate in a number of different options for work, you know, for the government in some way. It could be digging ditches or building brick walls or cleaning toilets or whatever. But, you know, there's there's ways that we can benefit given an opportunity. And it just seems silly to take a human life and just put it in a cage, you know, forever. I know that there's people that will think that this is, you know, some kind of crazy liberal way about thinking of things. But you'd be surprised the amount of support that these notions are getting you know, nationwide. And certainly, um, there are other countries that have a much better approach when it comes to how they deal with criminal thinking and criminal behavior. 
you know this from uh, seeing it on TV and stuff, but, you know, Sweden is a good example. They have a process whereby they, I don't think they have, I think they have one prison in the entire country and they just don't use prisons except in the most extreme um, and dangerous type examples of situations. You know, if they've got a serial killer who's going to go out and kill people if he has a chance, then they're probably going to have to put, keep, protect the world from that person. But there's practically, I mean, that, that's got to be less than a 1% of 1% of 1%, you know, of people that are in prison right now. I mean, how many people in prison today in our state are actually people that um, would go out and just kill someone randomly given a chance? Well, practically nobody, but you're increasing the odds of that if you teach people to be criminals and you teach people to hate the system, you teach people to hate themselves and hate everybody else around them, and they get treated like an animal, they have no dignity or self-respect. I mean, peeling all of that away doesn't help with um you know the basic concept of going forward and you know in our state we don't have the death penalty so you know we we either have a, a way that we deal with things that is we make the best out of a bad situation or we can throw people away and lock them up and throw away the key that kind of thing now you know one might ask what do we do about sex offenses because that's something that scares people a lot and rightfully so if you've got somebody who's accused of doing something you know criminally on a sexual level it, it raises eyebrows it raises concerns but having dealt with those kinds of cases for decades now i can tell you that it's practically always you know something going on on a mental health level and it becomes particularly difficult to get to the source of a problem when the stakes are so high. And let's not forget, you know, just look at it in a general sense. When a, when a sex offense is perpetrated, there tend to not be a lot of witnesses around. So these are cases that turn into he said, she said, and those cases tend to go to trial. And, you know, we got we have to incorporate another concept here. And it's a little hard to deal with in my mind. I'm not sure exactly how we account for this, but you know, our system right now is organized in such a way so that we basically determine guilt or innocence. And we have a lot of protections in place to try and prevent an unjust conviction. Um, but ultimately, we pretend anyway that we're trying to get to the truth of the matter. Now, what do you do if you have this very um, involved and frankly um, intensive restorative justice approach to things but the person truly didn't do what they're accused of because after all that's that's what our criminal justice model is based on is hopefully preventing a wrongful conviction right that's why the trial process itself is has so many different pieces to it so so many different components to it because just because someone is charged with an offense does not mean they've committed that offense you know that right you learn that in school and all these things in the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, have to do with, you know, not letting the government have too much power, right? So a restorative justice model in and of itself, like, kind of automatically means that the government is having a tremendous amount of power. But not necessarily, okay? And, and what I mean by that is that 
by having the participants in this process, and that means everyone, you know, we'd have victims, we'd have defendants, we'd have social workers, counselors, advisors, substance abuse programs, we'd have mental mental health access, um, psychiatry, everything, everything that we can pull into this uh, toolbox to um, address the situation, you know. It would be refreshing, I think, if we could get past the, the part about did the dude do it or not, and then just get to how do we, where do we go from here? And can we do it in such a way that it, it has some dignity and respect for those involved? And I'll tell you, you know, what, what processes like this that I've seen where the anger of a victim's family can actually be expressed towards the defendant face to face in a room or at a table where there's a you know a moderator there the opportunity to say you know you took my child's life and i want you to know more about this child i want you to know you know and, and say these things to the person where they have to listen and then a response you know that is something that i know many many uh, people that find themselves in that, you know, victims' uh, situation would would love that opportunity in expressing that anger, being allowed to express that anger. But you know what? At trials, you don't do that. It's all about did it happen or didn't it happen. So I'm trying to imagine this scenario. Let's say someone's accused of something that they truthfully, flat out, didn't do. Um, is there still a way that we can incorporate a process whereby the person can at least, you know, maybe we don't have to get there. The person can take a position. They could say, I didn't do this. I wasn't there, you know, whatever. And then at least understand what the evidence looks like, what this other person is saying, what the witnesses say happened, and so on. If the whole thing, if we can get around dodging the fact that someone wants to maintain their freedom and not go to prison, you know, hopefully we can get to the point where, what we're really trying to do is understand a situation. And I can see where that would even be. Let's say there's an allegation. Let's use the sexual assault thing. Let's say there's an allegation of that. And the per the defendant adamantly denies it. And again, remember, that usually happens because somebody is afraid of the consequences. And it's also abhorrent behavior. And it's also something that society looks down on a great deal, right? It would be embarrassing for somebody to admit it. But um, let's say that person maintains that position. I, I didn't do it. You know, there is still a way by which there can be participation in the process to understand why these allegations came up, what what the evidence is, why it looks that way. Do you understand, you know, that this person says that you did A, B, and C? You know, and have, have it be more of a discussion where it's an intervention and a, and a problem-solving sort of thing. Now, of course, I fear that type of situation where somebody would be 100% completely innocent and then they're forced to participate in a process that is basically uh, assuming guilt, right? I mean, isn't that kind of how it would have to work? But there are those that would say that's a problem, and I, I kind of agree it, it requires just more creative thinking, more innovation. But don't forget, um, these processes are going to have to be voluntary. You can't force a defendant to, you know, say anything ever. You can't force anybody to say anything ever. So most of these models that are that are being proposed and implemented in some places contemplate voluntary participation 
from all people involved. So I think that envisions, if you really want to have a good old-fashioned criminal justice thing going on, then by all means have access to it. But in the great majority of cases where there can be an alternative, even in serious cases, um, it can be made available. And I can see that working very well. Um, I hope at some point in my lifetime we can have a discussion about the way things used to be and the way things are. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, this is something that I've given a lot of thought to over the course of my career, having been both a prosecutor and a defense lawyer and uh, being intimately involved with all aspects of the criminal system. I, I just hope that we could be on a road to improvement and not the same old battle over guilt or innocence. Anyway, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. So another intriguing thing about um, some of these ideas about restorative justice that I found particularly compelling is this concept that we kind of, and it sounds weird, but effectively take away some of the power that a prosecutor has. And think about that for a second, because many judges will agree with what I'm about to say, and that is that the process is controlled to a large extent by the district attorney in any given jurisdiction. And what I mean by that is that the decision to charge somebody comes from that prosecutorial entity. The process by which a conviction is sought and obtained is that same entity. And a judge is supposed to call balls and strikes, right? I mean, they're not, judges don't decide what people get charged with or who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. They just provide the service of sitting on the bench and making rulings on things and conducting trials in an orderly fashion. They don't get involved in deciding who should be charged with what. If there is a sentence that occurs, then judges do participate in that, of course, but practically everything leading up to that, it's a relatively hands-off approach, and the prosecution does all of that work. Um, So you can see why, if you think about it that way, it can be fraught with problems, and often is. Um, So, you know, it, it comes down to the things that we discuss at length on this show, and that is the human variables, the fallibility of human thinking that exists on all levels in our society. The risk of, you know, someone having a particularly aggressive and unforgiving personality, which, fine, you know, that, but, you know, but let that person work at Hardee's or whatever, you know, it, and, but when you put that person in a role where they get to determine, you know, like one person gets to determine the outcome of someone's life, how someone is defined forever, and they basically take an approach that they should attempt to convict everyone of anything that they can possibly come up with with a philosophy that if you rule with an iron fist, the people will obey. So that is governmental power right there. If you're worried about these um, restorative justice programs resembling uh, governmental interference in people's lives, I get that, but it's spreading that power amongst different, all of the participants involved with the aid of professionals that are, that are part of helping agencies. I mean, imagine, again, if you've been through a terrible situation and you're a victim of a crime, 
if instead of being told, okay, well, the defendant's going to be arraigned, and these are the charges that the DA's office picked, and there'll be a trial in six months or eight months or a year, and we'll let you know when we need you to come in and testify against him. But otherwise, see ya. Instead of that, immediately getting people into um, services where they can be guided, they can be things, you know, the resources that we already have in place, by the way, can be utilized in such a way that um, people are much more involved in the process. We've tried to do that, of course, and I've complained about problems with Marcy's Law. Yes, there are problems with it. But the overall concept is to try and be more inclusive and to understand that quote-unquote victims in a case um, do have a role to play other than just witnesses for the prosecution. I get that. Now, we've seen problems, of course, because we're dealing with an old process with a new idea, and we're trying to meld those two together. So if we're still going through our good old-fashioned uh, persons accused of a crime, and you, nothing happens un unless and until that conviction occurs, where we solve the mystery of did the person do it or not, right? We, we spend a tremendous amount of time on that question, right? That's kind of what the whole focus is on. And then once we know the answer to that, and let's say someone's found not guilty, well, everybody goes home and everybody, you know, a victim's family would feel kind of jilted, you know. Or let's say there's a conviction and, you know, it took this long time where it would appear anyway from a victim's family perspective that the defendant was simply denying it all along by entering a not guilty plea and going through that trial process where the reality might be that's not at all what happened. You know, it looks that way. But again, we start with a presumption of innocence and people don't get exposed to very serious consequences unless and until they are found guilty. Right. Um, so add to that, uh, if you have a prosecutor that is perhaps unreasonable or unwilling to really look at the case or overworked, overburdened, underpaid, understaffed, you name it, all these different things that can result in, you know, really just kind of a muddying of the waters as we go forward. So again, imagine if we could, right at the outset, the inception of, of a criminal allegation, we can get to the heart of the matter and start working on healing right away, you know. And if people can see the benefit that they could achieve by voluntarily participating in that process, then it alleviates a lot of our court congestion. It would, oh, and by the way, um, counties that have implemented policies like this have seen a roughly uh, one-third of the normal processing time for a case to, to reach its resolution where the court is no longer, you know, involved with a hearing or something like that. So let's say your typical case would take a year to resolve. Well, you know, with some of these programs in place, that could be as little as four months instead of a year. So think about that. So we are dealing with some problems that, you know, I'll tell you, after 18 or 19 months of COVID and being unable to conduct trials, the system, you know, hit a standstill. And one might think that that was a golden opportunity for prosecutors to kind of say, well, you know, we're dealing with this pandemic and 
we're really not as interested as we might normally be in prosecuting crimes, and maybe we should focus on the real serious things only. That didn't happen, you know. Um, they just accumulated case after case after case after case, and I detect a lot of frustration on the part of judges now because they are dealing with a what seems to be an unsolvable problem in the sense that now we're we're trying to, you know, work through all of these cases. Now, since we know that, in my opinion, the vast majority of cases could be resolved in such a way where if you take that, the long pole of the tent out of the equation, and we're not talking about how much prison the person gets anymore, and we're talking about getting a program in place that can deal with this, that doesn't necessarily, you know, ostracize anybody and we can we can do this in a way where it's done with dignity and much more participation from all involved um you know we we would be saving time we would be processing cases we wouldn't be waiting around for the system to do what it normally needs to do and that is you know again it's a little primitive you know the way it is now someone gets charged with an offense and it gets set for a number of hearings you know it includes a pretrial conference a confirmation of plea hearing or change of plea hearing, a trial, and so on. And the thing that gets the parties to negotiate about a resolution of the case is the fact that there is a trial out there looming. And, of course, it's the prosecution's responsibility to make sure that they can proceed on whatever date is there. When that happens, it, again, forces the parties to talk about the case. When we didn't have that pressure on both sides, well, primarily didn't have that pressure on the prosecution, knowing that there are no trials happening because COVID's going on, you know, it, it just lent itself to cases not being in a position where the prosecution would take them very seriously. Because then you're, then you're in a, like a vacuum. If your only ability, and th this happened to me, you know, I'd have cases where we know that there won't be a trial for God knows how long, if ever, because of the pandemic. And then approach a prosecutor like how would you how can we possibly resolve this and they just take a uh, you know a hard line approach and say well your client can go to prison for 40 years that's that's what i'll do that's the deal <laughs> and then you say no right <laughs> uh take it to trial pack a lunch dude and um that's that's the power of the defense in that process is that you know when you're trying to seek a a just outcome the, the threat of or the power of the ability to take a case trial is is the central uh, point of how things work now. And trust me, hey, I'm talking about a process that would completely redefine the role of a defense lawyer and probably result in very few, if any, trials actually happening. Um, and of course, I love trial work, but, you know, I see the greater good here as being something that uh, could benefit all of us in a way that you know, does it sound very, does it sound utopian or dystopian? I don't know, but it, it's worth um, exploring and seeing how other jurisdictions have had success and how we see crime dropping, crime levels dropping. We see people put in positions whereby there's literally no incentive for them to commit a crime because they've, they're leading a more productive and healthy life. Time for a break, but we'll be right back. You know, there was also a presentation at the seminar I was at that dealt with the juvenile justice process. And you know, I'm very familiar with that just because I deal with those cases frequently, but this is kind of oriented towards people that may not know 
the inner workings of that process. And it occurred to me that, you know, I, I deal with these cases often, so I'm in court and I have I know how this all works. But it dawned on me that juvenile proceedings in Wisconsin are held in private. So you can't go to court and observe a juvenile uh, court proceeding because the privacy of the, of the child, the juvenile, is protected by law. So it's not an open court like everything else that we do in the justice system is. So I thought, oh yeah, there's probably a lot of people that have no idea what happens behind those closed doors. I mean, I'm on the inside of the closed door, so I know what's happening because I'm there and I participate, right? But the general public doesn't have much of an ability to understand. So I have learned over the years that this is one of the great mysteries about how things work um, when, when I meet with a family who's looking at a potential delinquency petition. And they're clueless and understandably like there's just what is this <laughs> i don't i'm not familiar with this process at all it's not something that you can familiarize yourself with you know by watching things on tv so the reason i point this out is that there were there were many aspects of this that i i truly appreciated some of the social workers and people that gave their perspective in this presentation and one of them is um we, we like to if possible have you know, early intervention to try and guide a family or maybe just the juvenile if the family's already on board with, um, you know, not becoming someone who engages in criminal behavior when they are an adult. So the juvenile process is, is much more hands-on than the adult process by virtue of the fact that since a person is not looking at really incarceration unless it's a really bad, bad case of someone who just simply refuses to comply with any rules whatsoever. Yeah, those people can be sent to a juvenile facility, but that's, you know, kind of like 1% of cases. Everything else gets handled in such a way where there are professionals that get involved with the process. They make recommendations that are almost universally followed by the court. And it's really with a mind's eye towards, you know, let's understand what happened here. Let's make sure that the family, a uh, victim's family, a, and the juvenile, him or herself, have all the resources that we can provide to get this person back on track so that when they do become an adult, they haven't blown an opportunity to be successful in life, you know? which kind of sounds like restorative justice, doesn't it? All those things I just said, <laughs> um, you know, that we could apply no matter what age a person is. And if it wasn't so much about, you know, what it's more like, okay, if you can participate in everything that's going on here and if you can, you know, cooperate, it's going to be okay um, in most situations, right? Um, and that's kind of the whole philosophy. Now, there there have been a lot of studies, as you can imagine, because this is something that we've been doing for quite some time, where our juvenile programs have been in place for 30, 40 years, right? And in recognition of the fact that, you know, scientifically, biologically speaking, juveniles are not as uh, mentally developed as adults. And, you know, there have been ongoing, there has been ongoing research in this area to suggest that males don't reach mental maturity until 
you know, generally well into their 20s, like 25, 26, something like that. Females tend to achieve that more around the age of 20 or 21. Um, but and what we mean by ment full mental maturity is, is when the brain has evolved to the point where it can deal with um, all of the correct rational decisions and judgment that is necessary and required to be a responsible citizen. So, you know, I remember being a kid, I did a lot of dumb stuff and a lot of it was impulsive. A lot of it was based on, you know, emotional, you know, reactions to things. Who are my friends? Who's got, who's got the better pair of Nikes, you know, <laughs> um, who's, who made the football team, all this other stuff, you know, there's this whirlwind of little social and, uh, emotional traumas that people go through or anxiety that's all focused on your friends and you're know, like, you know, we got to study for this test that's coming up. Um, I, I was not like a, a, an ideal student when I was in high school, I got good grades, but I think it was, I kind of feel like it was by accident. <laughs> I mean, I do remember working hard on some stuff, but it didn't really kick in for me until I was, you know, well into my twenties and I was going to college and then law school where I had this discipline that, that kind of drove I wanted to challenge myself, you know, I don't feel like high school challenged me very much. And, you know, that's a whole different discussion. What, why would that be the case? Why do some people get straight A's and other people get straight F's? You know, there's a lot that goes into that. But getting back to the whole juvenile process, there are long-term consequences for a finding of delinquency. In case you don't know this, if a person is found delinquent for an offense that would otherwise have been a felony when they, if they were an adult, that does preclude that person from possessing firearms. It's a disqualifying offense if it remains an adjudication on record. The other consequence is that if somebody does get in trouble later in life, those juvenile adjudications can come up. Even though they're not public record, even though you can't go online and find out if someone ever had juvenile problems because of the privacy issues that I mentioned before, the prosecutors and the courts and the social workers and the probation department and the Department of Corrections and all those people have access to all of those records so they can go back and see what this 40-year-old went through when he was 12 or 14 or whatever. And so, you know, it can have something that casts a cloud of um, problems over somebody if they were to get in trouble again. It also can affect um, one's eligibility for military service. Let's not forget about that. Or if it were to come out in some way, sometimes it can be embarrassing, you know. Um, but putting all that aside, in the vast majority of cases, we definitely see I, you know, I tend to um, have cases that are success stories. Somebody does something dumb. Somebody does something impulsively. There's a reason for it. You know, there's probably, you know, sometimes there's turmoil in the home that can be addressed through counseling or services. Sometimes it's a completely different issue. You know, I've had cases where a, you know, a juvenile client of mine may have acted out because he or she is actually a victim of some other kind of abuse or offense or something or bullying. You know, we see that a lot. And so in terms of when we look at 
other models of how restorative justice might work. We're kind of doing a, a version of that already in our juvenile process. And of course, there, there are, can be long-term consequences, but in, in the vast majority of cases where you have a family that cares, it supports the, the juvenile, you have a juvenile who is wanting to not be viewed as a problem person, wants to get good grades, wants to go to college, wants to have a good job, wants to be close to their family, wants to participate in their community as a good citizen. I mean, those are the cases where you can see that the juvenile process you know did what it was supposed to do and that is you know keep make sure the person stays on track or goes on the right track and, and i find those cases to be truly rewarding because you can see how if you take this whole contentious aspect of it out like you know juveniles accused of doing something that might be you know pretty serious but we're not looking at throwing the person into prison, you know, in the vast majority of cases. We're really just looking at addressing what, what went wrong, what we need to do to make sure that the juvenile is safe and society is safe, and, and what can we do to do that. And it really, there's a, a, it doesn't feel like it always because there's, there's so much participation from so many different angles in juvenile cases. Um, but it really does create opportunities where if someone's, has the motivation to really cooperate with the process, then it, things go well. And I like that. It's good. <laughs> all right. Well, we have to wrap up the show for this week. It's been great talking to you all. And you can tune in next week, as you can, every single Saturday, uh, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This is Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Hopefully we'll be able to round John up next week and make a, if he has a hole in his busy schedule, we'll be on at the same time. But until then, have a great weekend.